Welcome to Positively Pro-Life, a podcast brought to you by the Pennsylvania Pro-Life Federation. Positively Pro-Life brings you inspirational stories, important legislative updates, and informative interviews as we restore and strengthen a culture of life. I'm Bonnie Finnerty, Education Director at the Federation, and I am joined by my distinguished colleague, Maria Gallagher, our Legislative Director. Hello, Maria. Hello, Bonnie. It's great to be with you today. Always good to be with you. And Maria, we have some big news. As was announced at our very big Celebrate Life Banquet last Friday, as of January 1st, 2023, the Pennsylvania Pro-Life Federation will have a new executive director. Our longtime leader, Michael Chicochopo, is sailing off into retirement after 21 years at the helm, and he announced the appointment of Christopher Pouchaw, Esquire, to lead the largest single-issue pro-life organization in the Commonwealth. Chris will join us today to share his background and his vision for the Federation and a pro-life Pennsylvania. In addition, Maria will discuss the importance of a pro-life position for office holders. But first, some inspiration that was generated by the pro-life event of the year, our Celebrate Life Banquet that was held last Friday in Hershey. Honestly, where do I even begin? What an inspiration it was to look out across the ballroom and see 1,200 people of all ages and backgrounds who came from all corners of the state to attend our biggest event ever. Equally inspiring were the dozens of people and organizations that sponsored tables, enabling the Federation to have a very successful banquet. Such overwhelming support is a powerful testimony to the strength and momentum of the pro-life movement. One part of the evening that moved me to tears was when Margie Becker received the Pro-Life Lifetime Achievement Award. This sweet, humble 92-year-old who just last year retired as Executive Director of Lifeline of Southwest PA was so eager to shine the light on others who collaborated with her through the years. All I could think of is the number of people alive today in Southwestern PA and beyond because Margie answered a call to do something, anything about legalized abortion. And our other award winner, Cecily Routman, was truly inspirational as well. She explained that it was hearing a Jewish woman in an NPR interview insist that partial birth abortion was not prohibited in Jewish law that propelled Cecily to do some research and led her to found the Jewish Pro-Life Foundation. Since then, they have done amazing work teaching the truth about abortion to the Jewish community and helping young Jewish women facing difficult pregnancies. It was moving to see Cecily so very humbly and graciously receive our Pro-Life Leadership Award. And as if all that wasn't enough, we were further treated to an incredible talk by the person who many would consider maybe one of the most admired men in America, Dr. Ben Carson. Known for his civil and understated tone, Dr. Carson delivered a potent message for life that made us laugh, think, and marvel, not just at the miracle of life, but also the potential of medicine to save lives. He shared several stories of defying the odds, using ingenuity to discover new procedures, stepping out of the accepted comfort zone in medicine, all to save precious human lives. He spoke of the uniqueness of every life, a life that is unlike any other from the moment of conception. 
And he spoke of his mother who married young at the age of 13 and had only a third grade education, but was the wisest person he knew. While she didn't have many resources, her heart overflowed with love for her boys. And that love motivated her to find a better life for them. In cleaning houses for the rich, she found a common denom denominator in her clients, a love of reading and education. And so she instituted a routine that would change her son's lives. Dr. Carson talked about going from the bottom of his class to the top in just a year and a half, all because of his mother's love and discipline. And so many times today, we hear that there's not enough resources to welcome a baby. But Dr. Carson's story illustrates that the most important factors in raising children are love, hard work, and perseverance. And one final inspiration, it was the last banquet that our fearless leader, Michael Chicochopo, was to MC. After a 21-year career as the executive director, Michael will be re retiring at the end of this calendar year. While Michael deserves so many accolades, he spent most of the evening, in true Michael fashion, paying tribute to others, making sure that they are recognized for their contributions. So it was wonderful to witness our board president present him with well-deserved words of praise and a travel gift certificate for him and his wife. Like Margie, I wonder how many people are alive today because of Michael Chico Chopa's commitment to the most vulnerable among us. We may never know, but we are grateful for his unwavering witness and his stellar leadership. And we are looking forward to days ahead with a new leader and a strong and vibrant organization that Michael has built. To all who supported our Celebrate Life Banquet, thank you. You truly are an inspiration. Maria. Thank you so much, Bonnie. The following is from a news release from National Right to Life. A new poll for National Right to Life conducted by the McLaughlin Group finds that a pro-life candidate who would allow abortion only in cases of rape, incest, and to save the mother's life would beat a candidate favoring unlimited abortion for any reason. In the poll of 1,000 voters taken September 16th through the 22nd, respondents were asked to choose between a pro-life candidate who would allow abortion only in the cases of the life of the mother, rape or incest, and who opposed taxpayer funding of abortion, and a candidate who would allow unlimited abortion for any reason paid for with tax dollars, an extreme position advocated by the Democratic Party platform. A total of 47% said they would vote for the pro-life candidate, compared to just 44% who would vote for the pro-abortion candidate. Respondents were also asked to choose between a pro-life candidate who would allow abortion only in the cases of the life of the mother, medical emergencies, rape or incest, and who opposed taxpayer funding of abortion, and a candidate favoring unlimited abortion for any reason paid for with tax dollars. In this case, the pro-life candidate prevailed 49% to 42%. The pro-life candidate in the latter case mirrored the provisions of legislation recently passed in West Virginia and Indiana. Neither piece of legislation contained any penalties for the mother. In each case, the pro-life candidate took a position typical of Republican candidates running for office, while the candidate favoring unlimited abortion took a position typical of Democratic candidates. As has been the case for decades, pro-life candidates enjoy a distinct advantage over their pro-abortion challengers, said Carol Tobias, 
president of National Right to Life. These poll results underscore the importance of pro-life candidates clearly articulating their position while making sure voters understand the extreme position of their pro-abortion opponent. Bonnie. Thank you, Maria, for sharing that important information. Well, I am just delighted to introduce today's guest. Christopher Peshaw Esquire will become the new executive director and general counsel of the Pennsylvania Pro-Life Federation as of January 1st, 2023. Chris graduated from the Catholic University of America and obtained his law degree from Yale Law School, where he served as an essays editor on the Yale Law Journal. Chris has served in a variety of private and corporate legal positions throughout the Delaware Valley, including as Assistant General Counsel for Bank of America and General Counsel for Maurice Piers in Wildwood, New Jersey. Chris served as a volunteer with Pennsylvanians for Human Life for over 20 years. He began by giving presentations on the constitutional backdrop and ramifications of Roe in schools and served on PHL's board of directors. In 2021, he finished 10 years as its president and general counsel. He joined the staff of the Pennsylvania Pro-Life Federation in 2022 as part-time general counsel. Last Friday at our Celebrate Life banquet, our current executive director, Michael Chicochobo, publicly announced that Chris would be his successor. We are thrilled to have Chris with us today. Welcome. I think Chris, you're I muted, Chris. Chris, if you can unmute. There we go. Oh, great. <laughs> I, was great. I, was, I, was I was coughing a little bit. Thank you, Maria. Um, thank you for that introduction. Uh, Bonnie, I'm, I'm very excited and thrilled to be on the podcast, um, following the footsteps of my brother who teaches constitutional law at Pepperdine and, and publishes extensively on these issues. Um, so thank you for, for having me. Yeah, he was a great guest. We really enjoyed talking with him and we appreciate you uh, connecting us with him. Oh, I, I, he was one of the first things I thought of when I learned about Lifeline. So. So Chris, the cat's out of the bag. Everybody knows now. And I'm wondering what sort of reaction have you received from people regarding your taking the helm of the Federation? I will say, Bonnie, it's a great question. Um, <laughs> I will say better than expected. Um, I happen to be, if you're looking at the light, you, I don't know if you can see the lights of Las Vegas, but I'm, I'm at a uh, Association of Corporate Council in-house council conference uh, presently, I'm, I'm leaving in a little bit, but I, I did the big reveal myself to a lot of my colleagues. I'm in the Philadelphia chapter, um, and they they were kind of curious because we were at a lunch before. And I appreciate you know everyone keeping this under wraps. Um, and I said, you know, I'm going to be leading a a a very a, a nonprofit in Harrisburg very soon. Um, and I, I didn't give any more details because, as everyone can appreciate, you know, abortion isn't isn't the greatest cocktail conversational topic. Uh, but slowly, I've, I've let colleagues that I know and trust. Uh, I've been I've been letting the cat out of the bag myself. Uh, and I think, you know, sometimes you you understand who your friends are and who actually respect you. With an issue as volatile as this, uh, you, you can gauge their reaction. But so far, so good. I mean, I know that that probably will not be universally the case uh, when I return to this conference next year. <laughs> um, but yeah, and certainly friends of mine who have always supported me and my work with PHL uh, are over the moon for me to do this. I think some of it, 
full confession, I, I am a proud Philadelphia native, so going to Harrisburg is going to be a little bit of a transition, but um, but I think it's almost been universally well-received within that group. Chris, how did you come to hold your pro-life views? Uh, Maria, it was actually very similar to Dr. Carson. Uh, my mother was uh, a devout Italian Catholic. She was the mother of five. I was the caboose by 13 years. Uh, she was a grandmother to seven, and then before she died, she actually became a great-grandmother to three. Uh, so we, as the, I was the youngest of a family of five by about 13 years, and obviously the, the, the cliche of the close Italian family, as, as my predecessor Michael knows, <laughs> uh, it obtains for a reason. Uh, one of it, we had these discussions a lot over the table. First, it was just the example of my mother. I mean, she always saw motherhood and bearing children as a very unique gift. Uh, and the special preserve of women. Uh, she always, uh, she was actually uh, eventually became a real estate agent. And one of the greatest things she did, the part of the reason she did what she did was she she really was devoted to young mothers and children and to helping families find a home uh, to build and inculcate these values. So it started with that. Um, some of it, Maria, to be honest, even before I went to law school, I'm very proud of America. I'm proud of our constitutional heritage and legacy. And it, it never made sense to me that the Constitution always affords protections to the most defenseless, the voiceless, the underprivileged. But there was this curious absence of extending the same protections to the unborn. And I, so I would say in my talks for PHL, you know, I was just outside of the road generation, so I was born in 1971, but I would tell the, the students that uh, I would discuss uh, Roe and its aftermath with that, you know, if you do nothing else at the end of this class, go home and thank your mothers for bringing you into the world because, you know, two thirds of your, <laughs> I'm sorry, a third of your generation can't say the same thing. So I think it was just an evolving process and evolving awareness. Um, but but a lot of it was to me what I saw as as a galactic whole in our constitutional and jurisprudential history uh, that we're, we're we've basically sanctioned the murder of 65 million unborn American citizens uh, ever since Roe. Chris, can you explain exactly what Pennsylvanians for Human Life Education Services, with whom you volunteered for over 20 years, what do they do? Uh, well, the name speaks for itself. I actually didn't know this until midway through my tenure, but Pennsylvanians for Human Life actually is the southeastern chapter of the Pro-Life Federation. Uh, now, as we know, the, the Federation has a dual mission. Uh, you, you lead the educational arm, Maria leads the, the political and uh, political advocacy arm. Pennsylvanians for Human Life was exclusively and always dedicated to education. Uh, our 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 mission statement was, was very similar, at least educationally, to the Pro-Life Federation, that we believed uh, all life was sacred from the moment of conception until natural death. And so what we did was we would spread the pro-life message in its various forms in area schools throughout the Delaware Valley, so Philadelphia and the surrounding counties. Uh, we, would, we would occasionally go into public schools, uh, but mostly it would be parochial schools uh, in the Philadelphia area, we would have a variety. We, we were all volunteer. Uh, we we would have an executive director, but other than that, our speakers were all volunteer speakers. I, I was an attorney, so I did 
again, the constitutional backdrop leading to Roe and its aftermath in cases like Casey. And what it, what it gave me an opportunity to do was to just let students in on the backdrop, divorced from emotion, divorced from propaganda and, and headlines. And because they didn't, you know, they, they didn't really know. So we were, we were, our mission statement was also to change hearts and minds and to inculcate understanding of the abortion issue. We tried to do that as non-judgmentally as possible. A lot of our statistics we would harvest from the Guttmacher Institute, which is a, uh, you know, obviously a pro-choice <laughs> uh, think tank, but statistics are statistics. And even though they can be manipulated, we wanted to feed into the perception, well, the pro-life movement, you're just a bunch of braving lunatics and you're making things up and you don't like women. And so I was very careful, not just as a speaker, but also later as president to make sure we remain true to that mission. And some of our other volunteer speakers, aside from the legal backdrop, we would have uh, doctors go in and talk about uh, the life stages, uh, neonatal pregnancy. Uh, we would have other people talk about just their human stories. We had a lot of abortion survivors. And by that, I mean people who have who've gone through the trauma of abortion, uh, regret their decision, but, but we're learning to live with it. And I think those were, particularly with young kids, uh, those were the most visceral and transformative stories because on a human level, I think what we need to do as a society is to get back to face the truth of what abortion is. You know, one party always dies horrifically in an abortion, and that's that's an unavoidable byproduct of this debate, which I think a lot of times gets obscured. So Pennsylvania's human life, uh, you know, our mission was just to educate uh, young people and and to get them uh, thinking about these issues at an early age. And to be clear, we weren't just focused on the, the abortion issue. Uh, we would also do a variety of issues for physician-assisted suicide and euthanasia, which later in my life uh, hit home for me. I, I lost my mother and then my father and my uncle in the past decade. So things like, you know, pain management and hospice care and, you know, what drugs to administer and, and living wills really kind of hit home for, for me and my family. I mean, you know, my 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 father was an only child, and my uncle never married. So no one close to me had ever really died until my mother did when I was 41. Now she died pretty quickly, but but basically PHL ran the gamut. And and you know what we tried to do is is offer a more holistic view that life is sacred at all stages, um, and and that that was what we we tried to accomplish. What was the highlight of your tenure with Pennsylvanians for Human Life Education Services? Uh, I don't think there was just one. Uh, one of it, I mean, obviously, when I was uh, president, you become much more focused, again, as a volunteer organization on keeping us financially solvent. Uh, there, as, as with your banquet, our banquet was our chief fundraiser. Um, and there were there was you know there were different there were some lean times uh, you know we we depended universally on charitable donations and support from from our patrons um, during my tenure you know a bequest dried up I think we were being funded like there was a large sum that basically kept the lights on and kept the staff paid but that dried up during my tenure so I was forced I'd never really fundraised before but I was forced to keep a PHL going. One of my colleagues started things like raffle drives or the banquet. Or, um, but we had basically, 
I had to be more focused on keeping the mission going uh, once I had served. So yeah, I was I was very proud of that. But I think on a, on a personal level, the highlight of every talk I ever gave was that there was usually, as you can imagine, I always found that I got through, got the message through in single sex in, uh, environments as opposed to co-ed. I think the kids would get a little nervous in mixed settings, but it, um, I got good reaction, good talk from a lot of uh, either either single sex boys or, 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 or girls schools, but there would always be one or two students at the end of my talk that were a little nervous to raise their hand during the talk, but would come up and say, you know, Mr. Push, I really appreciate you coming in. You know, I did not know about any of these issues uh, other than, you know, what I would read in the headlines. And a lot of the theology teachers would also corroborate that by saying, you know, this, this is the first, this is the only day of the year of the semester that they're going to be hearing this, this message. So we got a lot of support, but you know, my, my goal was always if I could change one or two students' minds or get them at least thinking in that direction, you know, that would that was that was my goal and that would be the highlight for each presentation. Chris, you've had a very um, successful and accomplished career as an attorney um, and you've been a volunteer for a long time in the pro-life movement. So what is it that has led you from your career and from the volunteer role to being the next executive director of the Pennsylvania Pro-Life Federation? Yeah, that's a great question, Bonnie. Um, I think the, the immediate impetus was uh, Denise Wilcox, who's on the board of the Federation, also was, was the head delegate to the Southeastern Pennsylvania chapter of the Federation, which was PHL. Uh, she knew Michael was stepping down, and she asked me, as, as you said, I had stepped down as president after 10 years. I, To be honest, I was exhausted. Uh, <laughs> it was very stressful. I always came back to the mission because I believed in it, and I knew what I was doing was the right thing. Uh, that is not to say that nonprofits are free from dysfunction and their own <laughs> internal squabbles and strife and disagreements. Um, so I was a little bit burned out, and Denise originally said, you know, Chris Michael's stepping down, I think you'd be a perfect fit, and I, there, there, was, a, there was actually a student speaker at the banquet who put it perfectly, Lauren, uh, you know, she had said, sometimes the most qualified people are the most reluctant, and <laughs> I think in my case, I knew what a big job it was, I knew what a change it would be, um, I knew that there would be financial implications um, but what really led me was was Denise kept pressing, and I said, "Okay, I'll interview." So I started interviewing earlier this year, and I think, you know, because I was still making my mind up and in the process of discernment, I probably answered questions a lot more candidly than I normally did in an interview. But that came across to Stu Rogax and and the other board members, and then I I was offered the position, and I and I said. You know, it, it was still to me something that I had to make sure I had to be right in my mind that I could give this my full attention, my full energy, my full enthusiasm and dedication. Um, why I think to me, to answer your question, I think my life has slowly been building to this point uh, my entire career. Uh, as I said, these issues were always discussed at, at the dinner table. Um, part of a lot of the reason I went to law school was to. To, was first of all just to learn about Roe and Griswold and Casey and and how the Supreme Court and Justice Black 
then could make accommodation for that. I mean, I understood it politically, uh, but I didn't understand how the Supreme Court, I mean, first of all, could just run roughshod over, you know, orthodox legislative processes and make this decision, which is so galvanizing, basically dependent on what the, the makeup of the Supreme I apologize. Supreme Court was at the time. Um, and so between the law school training, my advocacy for PHL, uh, my, my tenure as president, and, and really, like I said, just taking a hard look at my life, uh, I just turned 50, uh, you know, with apologies to, to Jimmy Buffett, a, a pirate wasn't looking at 40, but a lawyer looking at 50. Uh, and I, I asked myself, you know, what, what is your life about, Chris? What, and what do you want it to be about? What, what is your legacy? And I, I really was taken, I mean, Michael and I have, have certain parallels. I know that he was a hospital administrator. You know, he was a major in the Air Force and he had similar, um, a, a discernment process and a struggle when he was in his 50s. And, and I think to him, he never looked back. And you can just tell, I mean, he is just filled with such a charism and such a dedication to the mission. You know, my only hope is that I can continue that. Um, but again, I can already tell I'm very excited, especially now that the news is broken. Um, I think my training, my background, my pedigree, and most of all, in, in the wake of Dobbs, uh, this has become the issue. I mean, it, it, you can see it in every campaign ad. And I think it's also a natural point of transition in our country, as well as for the Federation, now that the issue reverts back to the states. You know, Pennsylvania is and has always been the keystone state for this issue. I mean, this was what Casey was based on, the Abortion Control Act. And it was interesting, in, earlier this winter, after I had gotten the offer, but before I had accepted, Michael and I were walking on a frosty February morning in Harrisburg, and he, this is before Dobbs broke, but he said, you know, Chris, I've, I've been doing this for 20 years in a, in a row world, and you might be the first executive director in the history of the Federation to lead it through the post-row world and the Dobbs world. And I, say, I said, you know what, Michael, you are right, and that that is interesting. So I don't I don't know where it's headed. I have, you know, a vision and beliefs, and obviously I'm inheriting a great staff, uh, but it's a very exciting time. Uh, and I think it's a critical time for not only for our country, but also obviously for the, for the, the individuals that are most harmed by, by this decision, which are unborn children and mothers. Christopher Prashaw, incoming executive director and general counsel of the Pennsylvania Pro-Life Federation. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you. Positively Pro-Life is made possible through the generous support of the members of the Pennsylvania Pro-Life Federation all across the Commonwealth. The Pennsylvania Pro-Life Federation is the largest single-issue pro-life organization in the Keystone State, with more than 40 local county-based chapters. We shine a spotlight on the most vulnerable individuals, from the very dawn of life to the twilight of life. To learn more about the inspiring work of the Federation, please visit our new website at paprolife.org. You can also find us on all major social media. Just look for PA Pro Life. Thank you for joining us and remember there's always a reason to choose life.